You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I've had sex at work, sex in the workplace or workplaces, plural, never with a coworker though, not that I recall. So hopefully no potentially exploitable power imbalances to worry about here. The guys I had sex with at work were all boyfriends or fuck buddies. One eventually became my husband. So not employees or other employees, but guys who swung by the places where I was employed. First time was with this crazy hot guy at four star fiction and video in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was the night manager. He would drop by when I was closing up the place, which I did alone. And yeah, there wasn't an aisle or a counter or a bathroom or a storeroom or a break room that we didn't violate together. I don't know if Roger is a listener, but just in case, hey, Roger, those were good times. Great memories. Thank you. Anyway, I was thinking about all the times I had sex at work when I read about the trouble this guy named Marty Clark got himself into, in part because he wanted to have sex with somebody at work. You see, this guy, Marty Clark, and his wife, they're swingers. And they had an ad up on a website for swinging couples called Club Foreplay. And like everybody on hookup apps and swingers websites, the Clarks were swapping nudes with people they might want to play with. Mr. Clark even shared some of his dick pics with people he met, again, on a website called Club Foreplay, which is for swingers. So he wasn't sharing unsolicited dick pics. These were solicited dick pics. Anyway, eventually Mr. and Mrs. Clark met via this website a couple, and presumably it went well. But Mr. Clark got greedy and wanted to meet up with the woman from this couple alone, and that wasn't okay with this woman's husband. Some couples only play together. And after the husband found the messages from Mr. Clark that he was sending to his wife, which included an invitation to drop by his office and fuck him there, that husband got so annoyed that he went straight to the authorities the authorities in this case being the Kansas Commission on Judicial Conduct. Marty Clark is a judge and a Republican in Kansas. And now the Kansas Supreme Court must decide whether it's disqualifying for a judge to share nude photos of himself or herself via text or email or over a website like Club Foreplay. Todd Thompson of the Judicial Conduct Commission thinks it should be disqualifying, as he told the Kansas Supreme Court last week, quote, taking pictures of your genitals and distributing them in any way to the public does nothing to enhance the integrity of the judiciary. I don't think enhancing the integrity of the judiciary was the goal here. And it wasn't like Judge Clark was taking pictures of his dick and posting it on billboards or passing out the pics to the public at the farmer's markets. He was sharing them privately, not publicly, privately with potential sex partners who presumably wanted to see them in advance. This was private consensual adult conduct. It's crazy that I am rising to the defense here of a conservative right-wing Republican family values swinging judge in Kansas, but Judge Marty Clark was the victim here. The angry husband, a former sex partner of Judge Clark's and his wife, used photos that the judge had sent to him privately 
in an attempt to retaliate and ruin his life and end his career. But instead of posting those photos to Twitter or Pornhub or sharing the images via text or email, Clark's aggrieved hookup took these photos and sex messages to a review board with the power to end Clark's career. This is revenge porn. And Clark has already been negatively impacted by this. He's had to step down in the wake of this scandal. The Kansas Supreme Court is now set to rule as to whether Clark can ever act as a judge again. Swapping photos, even nudes, even dick pics, this is how lots of normal people conduct their private lives these days. And I, for one, want normal people with normal or relatively common life experiences sitting on the bench. And swinging is a relatively common enough experience. As a county judge, Clark ruled on family matters, divorce proceedings, custody disputes, amongst other things. Seems to me that an angry ex would be less likely to successfully argue in court that their former partner shouldn't be granted custody because their former partner sent a few nudes out to a potential sex partner once if they were trying to make that argument in front of someone who had, in his private life, swapped a few nudes himself. There is a concern that's been expressed that a judge who shared dick pics with the public could be blackmailed because it violates the judicial code of conduct. But that's really a perverse little bit of circular reasoning right there. Like when they banned gay people from serving in the military because gay people could potentially be blackmailed and therefore be security risks and they could potentially be blackmailed because gay people were banned from serving in the military. Don't want judges to be blackmailed for sharing dick pics. Don't make sharing dick pics a crime for judges. The behavior Judge Clark engaged in, Judge Clark, who the Kansas papers are now calling the club foreplay judge, common behaviors. People meet online, flirt online, arrange hookups and dates online, swap pics online, and sometimes arrange to swap partners online. Are judges in Kansas allowed to be people who do that sort of normal people thing? We're going to find out when the Kansas Supreme Court issues a ruling sometime next year. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love, Dr. Ina Park returns. We had around a few months ago to talk about her new book, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science, History, and Surprising Secrets of STIs. And she is back now to tackle some listener questions about STIs. Speaking of Magnum subs, speaking of becoming a subscriber to the Magnum Savage Lovecast, that again, you can do it savage.love. Twice as much show, more guests, more questions, no ads. We also do an extra thing every month just for Magnum subs, an online Zoom hangout. We call it Sack Lunch. It takes place on the first Thursday of every month. And this month's Sack Lunch is coming up November 4th. If you'd like to be a part of this really fun hangout with me and other Magnum subscribers, become a Magnum subscriber at savage.love. If you're already a Magnum subscriber, you will get an email on Thursday, November 4th in the morning with the link to our Zoom hangout this month. All right, let's get to the show. Hey, Dan, I'm from the Midwest and my fiance and I are both bi and in an open relationship where we hook up with other people together or apart. But usually we enjoy threesomes where we get to share some dick together. But lately, most of the men we connect with on Tinder or field will inevitably ask if we want to record our encounters. And at first, I didn't 
I didn't mind the question because I would just say, no, we're not comfortable with that and kind of brush it off. But I swear almost every guy we plan to meet has asked us this. And I get so annoyed for a few reasons, but the main one being that aren't they essentially asking us to make them free custom porn? It's frankly pretty insulting to be asked to make porn for these guys purely so they can jack off later. I don't know. Is it wrong to counter their question with, like, are you going to pay me? Because to me, it sounds like they're asking for free sex work. What do you think? Should I tell them to fuck off and just stick with the guys who don't bring it up? Obviously, you don't have to sleep with anybody that you don't feel comfortable sleeping with. And if just hearing this question, can I film this or can I record this on my phone while we're doing it, is such a turnoff to you if it feels like you're being asked to do uncompensated work, unpaid labor, make porn these people can look at and enjoy later. Uh, and that's insulting. And it's just such a turnoff that you don't want to fuck them anymore. Obviously, you don't have to fuck them anymore. And you can just get with the guys who don't ask this question. You can get out in front of it. You can put on your profile that, you know, you've been asked this question a lot lately. And it's a hard no, please don't ask. You might wind up in bed with some guys who ask anyway. That's some people have that reaction to someone very clearly setting a limit or a boundary. They regard that like, you know, like they shook the magic eight ball and it said, ask again later. And that will make you feel unsafe in the moment. And if they do that in the moment or when they arrive at your place or you arrive at theirs, end it. Just call it off. I meant what I said on my profile. And now I don't want to fuck you. Now I don't feel safe fucking you because you reacted to a hard limit like it was ask again later on the magic fucking eight ball and it wasn't. That said, you know, if somebody makes a sexual request and they get a no and they respect that no, that's a good way to determine whether, you know, if in the moment you're going to throw down another no or something's going to start to happen that you're not comfortable with or you start doing something that you said you were into or up for that night and suddenly you're not feeling it anymore and you withdraw your consent, knowing that they can already hear a no, respect a no could actually make you paradoxically feel more comfortable sleeping with them. This could be for you an acid test. You know, if somebody gets a no and they ask again later, ah, obviously couldn't be trusted, didn't respect the no. If they get a no and respect a no, well, okay. Well, then you know they can, that they're capable of doing that. That really like baseline thing that we should expect from our sex partners, which is to respect a fucking no. Critically important, particularly with people that you're hooking up with for the first fucking time and a sense of safety and security and giving someone else that sense of safety and security with you is crucially important. All that said, a lot of people are doing this now. A lot of people are filming the sex that they have. For some people, it's not so much about watching it again later and treating it like free porn. Sometimes it's just the filming of it itself in the moment feels hot and dirty. So much of our sex lives now is uh, mediated by screens. We watch a lot of pornography. We have our first sort of sexual experiences in front of computers with our phones in our hands. I know people who film themselves having sex, not to watch the films later, but to see it on the screen of their phone as it's happening. Those people you can ask to delete the images or the video if you allow them to do it. But again, you're not obligated to allow them to do it. And when somebody deletes a video or a picture in front of you, the phone saves deleted photos or videos for, I think, a month, 60 days. So you can't know for sure that they deleted it and then let it sit there for a month or 60 days. And it finally did delete. 
Ah, this is just a long answer. A long way of saying, yeah, you're allowed to not sleep with anybody you don't want to sleep with for any reason that you don't feel comfortable or don't want to sleep with them. Yeah, and if people asking you this question makes you not want to fuck them, don't fuck them. But again, you could get out in front of it by putting it on your profile. And if it's on your profile and they ask anyway, then they're double disqualified. Uh, hey, Dan. I'm 23 from the metro Detroit area. I guess I was just calling to ask. Lately, I found myself really confused. And I feel like I'm really behind in life, mainly just because I still have not actually had sex with anybody. I'm a gay man with, like, access to Grinder and dating apps, but I'm into my 20s and I still haven't even had sex. I don't really know what the reason why that is, but I find, like, apps really... I guess just not for me. I've never been somebody who could be that intimate with somebody that I barely know. I really need to get to know people and I am quite a shy person, so maybe maybe that's why I'm like pretty reserved. I don't know, just sometimes it just makes me feel not adequate and then I get nervous because it's like when I do decide or find somebody who I would want to do that with. I feel like I'm not going to know what I'm doing. It can be really daunting when you're young and gay and inexperienced. And the norm would seem to be gay men hooking up on Grinder, gay men having one night stands, gay men basically shaking hands with their dicks uh, is one of the things you hear people say. Uh, that gay men have sex, and then they figure out if maybe they want to get to know each other better. And when you sort of function in a different way, when you want to get to know somebody before you have sex with them, it can make you feel out of step. But there are a lot of guys out there who feel the way you feel. How do you find them? How do you meet them? Well, some of them are on Grinder. You will find profiles on Grinder from people saying, I'm a demisexual. I need to get to know somebody. I need to establish some sort of connection before I can feel sexually or romantically attracted to someone. You can just put that out there and it will instantly weed out of your replies, at least guys who read what people put up on Grinder and don't just look at the pictures. It'll instantly weed out all the guys who are just looking for dick right fucking now. And you may attract some guys whose ads appear to be just looking for dick right now who feel the way you feel and feel as out of step on Grinder as you may feel out of step on Grinder. The other approach, and I think this is an approach you should take simultaneously, is to get out there in the world and do something, meet people. If getting to know someone is a prerequisite, is something you need in advance of a desire to be intimate with that person, well, you need to put yourself in positions and situations where you're going to get to know other gay men. And this has been the advice from Ian Landers and advice columns going back a century. Volunteer organizations, gay rights groups, gay sports leagues, put yourself in situations where you're working together or playing together and not sexually playing together, playing together like a sports league with other gay men and you will get to know them. And a lot of gay men join clubs and organizations and sports leagues and volunteer for community-based organizations 
to do good, to, you know, get out there in the world, to, you know, go out there and play whatever sport it is they enjoy playing, but also in hopes of maybe meeting someone. So a lot of the people that you're going to encounter are looking perhaps for intimacy as well as to do good or feel good. And yeah, that's going to be a pool of potential contact, sexual and otherwise, where you're likely to meet somebody who feels the way you feel. It's almost a self-selected group. You know, Grinder is one self-selected group of gay men. Mixed into Grinder are going to be guys like you. I mean, obviously, you're on Grinder. You feel the way you do. We can infer from your presence on Grinder that there are other guys on Grinder who feel the way you feel. Hang a shingle. Be honest about who you are. If a guy comes to you looking for dick right now, say, you know, I need to get to know somebody better. If he goes to you, good riddance. Not the guy that you wanted to make any investment in of time or energy. You'll say that to several dozen guys. And then one guy will be like, well, let's get a drink sometime. Let's hang out. I'm also on Grindr to meet up and make friends. There are a lot of people on Grindr using it as a social network as well. But then the, also the self-selected group of guys out there volunteering, guys out there on gay sports leagues. Yeah, it's a different kind of self-selection. And a lot of those guys are self-selecting for, I need to know people better. I need to make social contact and establish some rapport and get to know somebody better before I can be intimate. That's why I'm here, you know, on this volunteer organization also to do good, but I'm also here in hopes of maybe making a romantic connection. That's why a lot of guys are on gay sports leagues and other uh, activities. So do a little Googling. You say you live in the Detroit area, do a little Googling, find out what orgs there are, you know, gay softball leagues, uh, there are in my part of the country, gay snowboarding, uh, and skiing clubs, find out what's in your area and just go make yourself go, but don't delete grinder, be on grinder, but be yourself on grinder. And you've never had sex with anybody that makes you nervous. You're not going to know what you're doing. Well, you want to find someone who wants to show you what to do or what they know, what works for them. And if you find someone who's into you, uh, attracted to you, likes you, and you're just honest about the fact that you made it to 23 without ever having had sex, if that's too much for someone, they're going to go stun you. They're going to pass. They're going to turn you down. Well, you don't want to be with somebody who can't handle that. And a lot of guys will be honored by that. will want to, be your first. You want to find a guy who's kind of into being your first and is going to be compassionate, patient, understanding. Don't go into your first sexual encounter pretending to be good at it or to have more experience or any experience. Just be honest about who you are. You'll attract someone who's into who you are. And also, you know, while it's more common these days for people to come out younger it's not uncommon even still for gay men not to have come out until they're in their late teens, early 20s, mid 20s, sometimes even later. So 23 and gay and out and a virgin, you're not so rare as you might think you are. You're not so rare as grinder might give you the impression that you are. Hey, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old trans guy um, living in the Pacific Northwest. I've kind of come to the realization over the last year or so that I'm 
hetero-romantic bisexual, and I guess, yeah, I didn't really know that label before, and that feels right. I never felt romantically attracted to guys, but that's like when I jerk off, basically all I think about is guys, and I haven't had sex with a guy ever. I haven't, I've only done like some stuff, and it's been almost 10 years since I've done anything with a guy since college, and I recently got on Grinder, and I've actually been having like some like a lot of like messages and interest. And I guess my question is that I'm kind of scared to actually go through with meeting these men. Like I really want to have a sexual experience, but I'm also part of me is really afraid because when I was presenting as a woman, which was until I was like 26 years old. I had a lot of, like, bad experiences with cis men, of course, like, non-consensual stuff, and then, in general, just feeling really powerless, and, like, they were completely in control, and I was submissive, but not in a good way, (laughs) I felt, like, what I wanted, like, I kind of want to use a cis man for his body, because I feel like they always use me. But, yeah, I guess, like, there's that fear of, like, because I was socialized as a woman and now being a trans guy, I don't know. I'm, like, there's, like, that looming threat of violence. And, I mean, I live in a very liberal city and I, compared to trans women and trans women of color, I have it pretty good. So, I don't know. I guess what should I do, like, to make sure I'm safe? As far as meeting up with these people, like, should I have a drink with them first to make sure they're not a murderous person? I mean, I guess you can never know for sure, but uh, what do you kind of recommend for next steps, I guess, um, of someone who's kind of afraid to take that leap, but is really horny for guys and wants to do that? So you described yourself as uh, heteroromantic, and I assume that means that you want to have relationships with women. You're a man, heteroromantic, that means relationships with women. You just want to hook up with dudes. Yes, correct. I want to use dudes for their body, basically. Uh, I'm curious, you say you got on Grindr, and it sounds like you got a good response. Were you out on Grindr about being a trans man? Yes, yeah, I've been very open about that. And also, I, I've been kind of like on Grinder for a while, but just messaging and not like meeting anybody. And then I, I was very explicit um, when I went on this last time about like I put in my profile exactly what I was looking for. And I feel like I'm getting even more responses. And now I'm like nervous about <laughs> like I do want to meet up with them, but I'm. Yeah, like I said, like safety and just like I haven't had sex in general in like two years. So Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of rusty and I feel out of practice. Okay, I I just want to put a pin in that really quickly. Uh, Did you get any shitty messages from people, from gay men being like, what are you doing here on Grindr as a trans dude? No, I haven't gotten any. And I live in a very liberal place, so I'm probably – not that it's never – happened um here but i've been lucky in that regard okay well i i just want to highlight that for other trans guys who may be listening other trans gay men that sometimes trans gay men are afraid of getting on hookup apps because they've heard that gay men can be really transphobic and indeed some gay men can and they're afraid that if they get on 
an app like Grinder, which is for gay men. They're going to get grief from cis gay men who aren't interested in them and can't just like own that and shut up and go away, but like are going to go out of their way to, to make them feel bad. And your experience has been positive, you know, taking into account where you live, which is a very liberal and progressive yes. area. But still, even in liberal progressive areas, there are shitty gay people who can do very shitty things on hookup apps that make people feel terrible. And I just really want to highlight, not to like give a gold star to gay cis men, um, <laughs> but to just highlight for other trans guys out there who may be listening that you can get on apps and you will get not just um, you know ignored by the guys who aren't into you, but you'll get responses from gay men who are into you. Yeah, no, it's been kind of surprising for me as well. Like, just, um, I always kind of expect the worst in these situations. And I get a lot, I've been getting a lot more attention from these cis gay men than I ever have from any women on Tinder or anything like that. So it has been affirming in that way. Okay, well, that's great. And so now you're nervous about meeting up with any of these guys. And you put out there that you're (laughs) interested in using a guy for his body. A lot of gay men like to be used in that particular way. And you're looking to be more of the dom or the dom in this meetup that you'd like to have with someone. You want to be in control? Kind of, but I'm I'm also like, I, I want to be in control, but in the way that's like, I feel safe, but I also don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And so I I do like in the bedroom, I'm kind of like, I want someone to show me what to do, tell me what they want. Like, I'm not going to be very dominant in the actual <laughs> sexual setting, even though I do want to use them for their bodies, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. You just want to be able to like be really clear about what your boundaries are and have them respect. Yeah. Yeah, totally, because I've already found, like, even though I put, like, in my profile, I only want, like, oral stuff or hands, like, I don't want any penetration or anything, so it's, like, very specific, and then I feel like already there's guys that are like, oh, I want to be deep inside you, and I'm like, okay, but did you read my profile, because that's not what I'm looking for. And when you've said that, when you've pushed back, and you've said, hey, did you read my profile, what has been the response? I haven't pushed back yet. That was in my head, me thinking that. And I just kind of was like, didn't say anything yet. Like, I don't know. I feel very uncomfortable even on Grindr saying when I don't want something, which is definitely me being socialized yeah. as a woman. And well, gr- well then yeah. let's, I think maybe you should slow your roll and use Grindr as practice to, to, okay. to le- start saying exactly what it is you want and what you don't want and to push back against guys who may not have, you know, they may have just looked at your pictures and not really read what you said in your profile or, you know, the short right. bit of text you conclude on Grinder. And so if you say like, Hey, that's not what I'm looking for. And then they read and they're like, Oh, sorry, I'm f- fine with like, I can roll with whatever. Okay. Then okay. Yeah. But if they keep pushing past and this is a really good, like, you know, you're telling, like, I always like to say this, you're telling them some one thing about you, they're telling you everything about them. If you say, mm-hmm. I'm only up for X, and they keep pushing that, you know, what they want yeah. to do is be deep inside you, well, then you know everything you need to know about that person, block them, and they're gone. You never have to see them again. And you'll have yeah. interactions with guys who seem more receptive uh, to, to what you have to say, to what you're asking for. And then you can meet up with those guys. And, you know, I can't promise you, you won't have a bad experience and meeting up for drinks first Mm -hmm. is not a guarantee that no terrible thing can happen. 
I had a friend who right. met up with somebody for drinks and that guy killed him. Like that is a thing that can happen. Oh God. Yeah. So you have to use your best judgment. And if you feel, and this is sometimes really hard for people who are socialized as women. If you feel unsafe, if you feel like just awkward, if you're not into it, if you're not into them, once you meet up, you say thank you and goodbye. And you pull up your pants if they're down already, or you pull your hands off their, out of their pants if they're in their pants already. And you just go. And yeah. This this happens a lot. You know, gay men meet up a lot on Grinder. If it was routine for guys meeting up on Grinder to be assaulted or killed, we would read about it all the time. We read about it occasionally. But when you consider Grinder and other hookup apps, you know, Scruff and Sniffies and Recon and everything else, when you consider how many millions of gay and bi men, cis and trans are meeting up on any given night or weekend through hookup apps and how we read a handful of stories in a year, about a murder or an assault. Well, that tells us those murders and assaults are really fucking rare. Right. Right. But still a thing that can happen. Yeah. So you got to go in with your, you know, your bullshit detectors on full turned up. And if you feel like bullshit is going on or this person is manipulative or creepy, or you, you know, you set one little boundary and they're already trying to push past it. You know, if you say, I don't like to be held yeah. down and they like start to hold you down while making out, well, that tells you everything to, you need to know about what they're going to do or think of your boundaries when you're, you've gone a little farther and you can just totally. extricate yourself at that moment. You got to get good at that. And Grinder, before you meet up with anybody, it's a really good place for you to practice that. Like if somebody isn't okay. listening to you, shut it down and then you know, when you're meeting up in person, it'll be a little harder to shut it down if they're not listening to you, if they're not respecting your boundaries, but you will have some practice having done it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Totally. Hey, uh, good luck. I, I think you should go for it. You know, Thank you. put it out there that you, it's been a couple of years, you're really down to do this. You want somebody who will respect your boundaries and you want to have some fun. You want to use some hot cis dude for his body. And like, that's music to the ears of a lot of gay men. A lot of gay men <laughs> want to be used like that. Cis gay men, trans gay men, you really, I think are a little bit more comfortable with being objectified because we're not as men on the receiving end of aggressive objectification all the time. Like people who present as right. female are or present as women are. And so it can be like fun for men in a way that it can like not always be fun or welcome. You know, men all kind of have to invite that kind of objectification. So if that's what you're offering, yeah, yeah. you're going to get a, like you've already gotten a lot of interest. You're going to get a lot of play and you can take your pick. Obviously, you know, I remember talking to my trans friends two decades ago and they felt like they could never turn anybody down. Because the people who might be into, mm -hmm. you know, dating or sleeping with somebody or hooking up with somebody who was trans, it seemed like such a small number that a lot of trans people that I knew 20, 30 years ago wound up having sex with people they weren't really into, that sex didn't really make them feel good for fear of not being able to have sex with anybody at all. That was yeah. for, you know, trans people, it felt like a, a seller's market. Now it's a buyer's market. You can take your pick. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that is, it, it's very, that's new to me because with women, it's like nobody is interested at all. So I'm, it, yeah, it's, it's cool. And I'm like, good advice to like, kind of take it slow on grinder, say what I like and don't like and kind of get practice there. Yeah. And you're in demand, which means you can afford to be choosy. 
and take your time <laughs> and get with somebody that you feel safe with that you can objectify the way you'd like to objectify and be objectified by the way you would like to be objectified by. Okay. Okay. Totally. Give Thank us a call so back much. and let us know how it goes. Let us know how it goes. I'm, I'm okay. really, I will. Uh, I'll be interested to hear. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate you calling me. Thank you. And thanks for calling me. Thanks for your question. Hi, Dan. I am a 54-year-old cis straight male. My wife and I have been married for over 30 years. And early in our marriage, she had an affair that resulted in pregnancy. And we had a two-year-old daughter at the time that I wanted to make sure was uh, you know, that I was fully involved in her life. So I agreed to reconcile and we moved on. And she gave birth to a baby boy who I raised as my own. Unfortunately, we never really got the opportunity to address the issues that led us to that point. You know, basically life went on and we raised a couple kids and the next thing we knew, the kids were grown and moved out and we really had nothing in common. None of the past issues have really been reconciled. We went to counseling. We're good for a few years and that seemed to be our cycle. We'd go to counseling. A couple years later, we'd have to go back and that's where we're at now. Um, we went to counseling five years ago and I decided to, you know, give it one more shot. But at this point, I feel like I've done my due diligence and we're really just back where we were. So I'm looking to put divorce proceedings in motion, but I haven't told her that yet because I want to sell the house. We've already been talking about selling the house and I want to sell the house and give her the proceeds so that she can have some place to live because I want to make sure that my, you know, kid's mother has got some place to go. And the house needs work. We've got holidays coming up. So I'm just kind of like trying to maintain everything until after the end of the year. And I feel like my intentions are good, but I worry that I'm being deceptive and I'm trying to reconcile that. I just feel like I can't tell her where I'm at right now without torpedoing a lot of things. Sometimes there's a gap. Sometimes there's a gap between the time you've decided for sure that you're going to end a relationship or in your case, call her end a 30 year marriage and the time when you inform your partner or your spouse that that relationship or that marriage is ending because you're ending it. Now it can be really painful for someone to realize when they're being broken up with that the person who's breaking up with them knew they were going to break up with them months and months and months ago or longer sometimes. That can be humiliating. And if in that gap between you deciding you're going to end the marriage and you informing your wife you're going to end the marriage, perhaps she sensed it, came to you repeatedly for assurances and you reassured her that you had no such intention if you were put in a position where you either had to confirm before you're ready to confirm they're going to end the marriage or dissemble – that can make it even worse. Your wife could sit there, you know, six months from now when you've ended the marriage and think back over the time you had together, the last six months you spent together and obsess about those moments when you lied to her or actively misled her about your intentions so that you could tell her when you were ready to tell her. Now, what you're doing here is in her best interests. You want to wait until the house is sold. You don't want to ruin the upcoming holidays. You just want to get past the end of the year before you drop the bomb. And your intentions here sound 
very admirable. You want to sell the house? You want to give your wife the proceeds so she can buy a house so that the mother of your children still has a home where she can welcome those children back. And hopefully if the divorce is amicable after 30 years, you can be welcome as well for holidays and family events and celebrations. The gap doesn't exist for, as it sometimes does for some people, a self-serving reason on the part of the person who's made the decision to end the relationship. You know, if you're with somebody for a year or two and they're taking you on a, you know, cruise around the world or some incredibly expensive vacation and you've already decided to break up with them and then you wait until after they buy you that, they give you that gift. They take you on a cruise around the world and then you break up with them and they realize, uh, you decided months ago to break up with them. And the only reason you were still with them until this moment is because you wanted the gold-plated cruise around the world. Yeah, that's galling. And that's a shitty thing to do. That's a shitty reason to have this kind of gap or to create this kind of gap or to wait. Your reasons don't sound shitty or self-serving. They sound, if you're being honest with me, loving. They sound considerate. You're taking your wife's feelings into consideration, the, the needs and feelings of the children you've raised together into consideration, and you're biding your time. Giving your family the gift of one last holiday while everyone's still together, and you're getting the house ready to sell, some work to do on the house, so that when you do sell it, when you do tell your wife that you're ending the marriage and selling the house, you can take care of her. And not, you know, she's entitled to half of everything, but you're not going to leave her in the lurch. It sounds like you're going to give her potentially a greater share of the value of the house or the entire value of the house. You know, you're being a mensch here. You're being a good guy. The existence of the gap by itself doesn't prove you're a bad guy with bad intentions. The reason for the gap can demonstrate bad guyness or bad intentions, but your reasons are sound and loving and very considerate. And so you have my blessing. Hi, Dan. 28-year-old male from Canada calling. I'm currently in a monogamous relationship. I've been with this girl for almost two years now, and I love her to death. It's the only girl I've ever really been able to see myself ending up with, someone who could be the mother of my children. I love her very much. Part of Loving, she's cool. She's my best friend and we get along great and we communicate well and we share the same values and everything is good. And I guess I'm kind of going out of my mind right now because I've been pushing these feelings aside that I've had for a long time where I just don't know if I can go from where we are now to, you know, forever. I'm 28 years old and I know I'm not getting any younger and I guess my fear is that you know, in four or five years when we are supposed to be settling down, so to speak, moving in together, thinking about having kids and building a life together, that I'm still going to have these doubts, these feelings of, you know, I'm never going to be alone again. I'm going to always have this person that I'm beholden to. I'll never have my freedom again. It scares me a lot. And I know that this is part of being in a relationship. I know that there's sacrifices. I know that probably men especially have these thoughts. And there's things that I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice and things I'm willing to compromise on. I just don't know if I can do it yet. And there's just a lot of things I still want to do in life. And there's this feeling I get when I'm alone, feeling of freedom, that I, I don't know if I'm ready to give that up forever. 
So I don't know what I'm asking. I guess I'm wondering, how do you know? How do you know when you should just ignore those feelings? Because you have a good thing going. How do you know when you should just let that person go, at least for now, because they deserve someone who's in it, ten toes deep. I have a feeling that what I'm about to say isn't going to be a comfort to you. You'll never know. You will always have doubts. If you stay with your girlfriend for the rest of your life, you may occasionally regret that choice. If you leave your girlfriend and never meet anyone else ever again that you feel as strongly about, you may regret that choice. You're just going to have to live with and accept that tension. What I think I can help you with really are, are two things. It sounds to me that the thing that's fueling your despair is really a false choice that you've set up for yourself. There is your girlfriend or there is freedom. There is not and cannot be. This is what we're told about long-term committed relationships. There is not and cannot be the person you're in a long-term committed relationship. There cannot be that committed long-term relationship and freedom too. That is a lie. You can, I mean, you can't have absolute freedom when you're in a long-term committed relationship. You will have obligations. You will have responsibilities. But you can have zones of freedom. You can carve out time alone. I think a person is entitled to, as I said frequently on the podcast, zones of erotic autonomy, whatever that might look like. But also, you say when you're alone, when you are alone, you feel free in a way that you don't feel when you're with her, well, you can be with someone, you can be with somebody for the long term and still have friends that you see on your own. People in long-term committed relationships, people in marriages sometimes go on vacations alone. They travel alone. Sometimes someone, if they have the kind of job where you can get a sabbatical, gets a sabbatical and goes on a sabbatical alone, there are ways to build into your life with your girlfriend time to yourself, freedom, so that it isn't a choice between her and freedom. And it seems to me, my hunch is that you haven't shared any of these reservations or doubts with your girlfriend, and that is making you feel terrible. You assume that she is 100% committed to this relationship without reservation, without doubt, without projecting herself into the future every once in a while, and struggling herself with feelings of I guess, uh, regret or anticipatory regret. For all you know, she is in the same place emotionally that you are, loves you very much, regards you as her best friend, maybe the best things ever happened to her. And yet she is also young, like you are young. And yet she struggles with what it'll mean at this stage of life to commit to you in the way you two are tiptoeing up or drifting toward a kind of lifetime commitment that you haven't articulated or fleshed out or discussed. You need to do that. You need to have an honest conversation with her. I love you. I love you so much. Sometimes I think, ah, what'll it mean if I never get out there in the world? Sometimes when I'm alone, I feel, ah, it's really great to be alone. It's great to have this feeling of freedom and autonomy. And I assume you must have those moments too. And if she's honest, she'll tell you that, she does because everyone does. Everyone who's being honest in a long-term committed relationship sometimes gets away from their partner, has a moment alone, 
carves out a little time to masturbate alone, fantasize about something that doesn't happen in the relationship, spend time with friends alone, has a short business trip and is suddenly free to do whatever they want or whatever they don't want. Even if what they want is just to hang out in the hotel room and stare at the ceiling and do nothing. There are those moments when you're in a long-term committed relationship where you don't have to answer to anyone or meet anyone's needs. And you shouldn't feel guilty about enjoying those. And I think you should be honest with your girlfriend about having had moments like that, where then you find yourself really making this comparison that highlights the false choice that's been sold to you about what relationships are, that you can have an, you know, those moments strung together endlessly, complete freedom and autonomy at all times, which you really don't want because you want her, you want a person in your life to whom you matter, that matters to you, that answers to you, that you answer to, you want that too, but you also want those moments of freedom. And if there aren't those moments in your life, if you have to right now steal those moments from her, from your relationship, well, that's not healthy and not sustainable. And so if you two are going to be together forever, if that's the conversation you want to have now, that's the negotiation you're going to enter with your girlfriend, what you need to put on the table is how can I continue to have those moments of freedom where I'm off on my own or you're off on your own and neither of us has to answer to each other at those moments because I want you, but I want that too. And I'm here from the future to tell you that you can have that. You can build that into a long-term committed romantic relationship. Indeed, there's a lot of research out there that shows that Time alone, time away, vacationing separately, having different social circles separate from your long-term partners contributes to the success of a long-term committed relationship. It's one of the markers of a successful relationship. So you shouldn't feel guilty about what it is you want. And you have to stop telling yourself that you can't want what you want, some freedom, some autonomy, and want your girlfriend to or have your girlfriend to. You can have both, but you're going to have to work that out. You're going to have to negotiate that with your girlfriend. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. So I was recently in a situation and, um, not quite sure how I feel about it months later. And I've just been thinking about it. I'm curious about your opinion and I guess maybe even your listeners opinions. If I am sleeping with somebody who has HSV2 and I am using a condom and they are taking their antiviral medication, while at the same time I am sleeping with another person unprotected, do I have an obligation to tell the person who I'm sleeping with unprotected that I am also sleeping with somebody who has HSV2? whether I guess protected or unprotected. I'm just not really sure where to stand on this. I, I lean more toward uh, sharing that information. Curious about what you would say the protocol is for that. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Ina Park, a professor of family and community medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and an STI prevention consultant to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. Hey, Dr. Park, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Dan. 
Hey, thanks for so much for coming back on the show. We, we had you on to talk about your terrific memoir, Strange Bedfellows, Adventures in the Science History and Surprising Secrets of STDs. And I wanted to have you back to take some calls from listeners about STDs or STIs. Uh, and so you came back and I'm so grateful. And this is the first one we're going to throw at you. What is sure. the protocol here? Okay, so Dan, you're not going to find this protocol written down in any sort of textbook or on the internet, but it just comes down to like basic uh, infection control, which is that, you know, and we know this from COVID as well. It's like if you had direct contact or like a first degree contact, we call that with someone who had an infection, whether it be HSV or whether it be COVID, well, then you are directly at risk, right? So um, you should either be tested if it's appropriate, um, or look for warning signs that you might have been exposed. But um, for second degree contacts, so those are the, you know, the people that are one degree away from the person who has the infection, there isn't a clear protocol where someone would have to voluntarily disclose that. So it's more, you know, certainly if you're asked a direct question and you say, hey, do you know if any of your other partners happen to have, you know, herpes or HIV or anything like that, then I think it's, you know, important to disclose I think, um, you know, otherwise there isn't, you know, some sort of obligation from a medical standpoint to disclose that information because we don't know if the person, you know what I mean? The person who's actually sleeping with both of the other partners actually has the infection or not. So we have no idea whether or not, you know, one of the partners actually is it as at any risk. But let's talk about the actual risk then for a second. Sure. The, the person that the caller is sleeping with uh, had herpes, had an herpes brow- outbreak, is now on yes. the medications uh, right. that make the outbreaks less likely to recur, but also right. makes them less infectious. And they're using condoms on top of that. The actual risk there of the caller getting infected do seem low. Yes, it's incredibly low, Dan. Let me break it down for you, if you don't mind, for just a second. I no, mean, please. If the partner, um, if the partner who's living with herpes let's say they're at least two years out from when they first got infected, on average, they'll only be shedding for about 10% of the days out of the year, right? So the other 90% of the days, they couldn't transmit it anyway. And as you know, you know, shedding happens silently. So the person usually isn't aware when um, virus is actually being shed, unless they're having an active outbreak, in which case we know virus is shedding. But anyways, I don't know the gender of all of the people involved here. Um, the the data that we do have and the studies that we do have happen to be between cis men and women, but we know that condoms, you know, if it's a male partner and a male partner with herpes and a female partner who doesn't have herpes, using a condom actually reduces the risk by over 90% on top of the antivirals. And then if you, if, if it's a female partner who has herpes, then um, the male partner wears a condom, it actually reduces the risk of transmission to him by about 65%. So what I'm saying, Dan, is that we're talking about really, really small risks. And I wish I had better information for non-binary folks, um, men of sex with men, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't have great information. But if we translate it, I think we can say that the risk is very low. Okay, so the risks are low, but I would describe this as a low probability, high consequence event. If you're sleeping with someone who has herpes and they've disclosed it to you, and then you're at the same time sleeping with someone else, and you haven't disclosed to them that you're sleeping at the same time with someone who has herpes, and the person, the other person you're sleeping with, 
comes down with herpes, has an outbreak. Perhaps they were infected before by someone else and maybe they have other partners. But, you know, if the person you're sleeping with comes down with herpes and you're like, oh, right, yeah, there's this other person I'm sleeping with right now who has herpes. Maybe it was me. Right. I could see that doing a lot of damage to that relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. And so one thing I think that um, your caller could do is that if they know, so they know that they're in a relationship, a sexual relationship with someone who has HSV, they don't actually know their own status yet, it doesn't sound like. So one thing that they could do to sort of clear this out is they could actually, you know, get a test to figure out their own status. And right now, because there are lots of issues with the test um, giving false positives, the CDC is now recommending everybody get two-step testing like we used to do um, for HIV, where folks would get a... Um, an initial blood test, and they would get a confirmatory test as well. And so he could learn his own status, and then he would, you know, know going in whether or not he actually has HSV or not. You know, I think it depends on his comfort level as well. So I think if he feels like he ought to disclose because of what you mentioned, there is, you know, a, a high consequence here. I, you know, I would completely support that. One thing that I would actually recommend is that if he doesn't know his status, that is one of the indications in terms of getting a herpes uh, serology or blood test is that if you are having sex with someone who you know has HSV and you don't know your status, you know, he could um, go and get tested. And because those tests can have false positives, the CDC is now recommending as of the summer is recommending two-step testing for everyone. So a, a blood test and then a confirmatory test. Um, either a Western blot or a, another test called a bio kit. And, um, you know, you're familiar, that's the test that we used to use to confirm HIV results as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, he, him knowing his own status might give him peace of mind, at least to say, well, I already have HSV. And then he would know um, that, you know, he certainly has to disclose in that in that situation. But if he doesn't, the odds mm-hmm. of him contracting H- H- HSV, herpes, from his partner. Again, I just really feel like we should emphasize this. If you're taking yes. antiviral suppression medications, if you're taking those, uh, valacyclovir for herpes is usually the one that's prescribed. Mm-hmm. The chance that you will infect someone, so the chance that the caller's partner will infect him, are very, very small. And then if you yes. add condoms on top of that, belt and suspenders, the odds are vanishingly small. But Right. But the ethics of it are tricky, you know? Yes. The, the, the stigma is so uh, exists out of all proportion to the actual impact uh, on, right. on people's lives uh, of herpes. And yet people are pretty hysterical about it, uh, sometimes irrational right. uh, uh, about it and very fearful of it. And good mm-hmm. on the, the caller's partner for disclosing in the face of that stigma and fear. Not everyone does. And there are some people out there who right. argue that not everyone should have to because mm-hmm. of – how disproportionate the fear and stigma is to the actual impacts. But it does put the caller in the position of having to wrestle with the ethics. I think it's the ethics he meant, not the protocol, the ethics, perhaps etiquette of whether he needs to disclose to all of his knock on partners for the rest of his life. Because if he doesn't get tested, he could get herpes, not have an outbreak and be able to pass it on. Absolutely. It just, it, it seems to me that Everyone should just disclose that they have herpes, whether they know they do or not, because if you're a sexually active adult with more than a handful of partners, you've probably been exposed. You probably have. And honestly, Dan, like the way I 
counsel folks, my own patients, is just sort of live your sex life as if everybody has it. Do you know what I mean? And so this has to be some acceptance of the fact that we are going to get exposed to STIs if we have sex. And so, um, you know, this is a gray area. Again, you're not going to see it written in black and white that you have to say anything. And so I always say like, you know, check your own sort of internal compass. And if you feel like I really just should say something. So everybody is, you know, and all the, you know, everyone is on the same page about what's going on, who I'm sleeping with, what they have. I think that's fine. But again, um, the risk is so small that if this person doesn't already have HSV, I personally don't think he's obligated to say anything, but again, he should do what he feels comfortable with. Can we keep you on the line for two more questions? Absolutely. Hi, Dan. 20-year-old bisexual from Dublin. So I recently started dating uh, this lovely girl, and we haven't had sex yet. But And after a few dates, she told me that before we got physical, she needed to tell me that she has genital herpes. You know, I really respect that she handled it very responsibly and maturely. And she even said, like, if that turned me off dating her, then she understood. But she is on antivirals and assured me that she always practices safe sex with partners. And I know that the risk of contracting herpes is seems pretty low, but it's still there. And we've only been dating two months, and I just feel it's a big risk to contract an STD for the stigma that other people, and I guess that I'm now attaching to it. But although they seem like such a lovely, like emotionally intelligent person, and it was absolutely the responsible thing to do, I don't know if I can get to know someone without having sex. And it feels like something that could impact me long-term and alter like future sexual relationships. Since her disclosure, we've kissed, but not done anymore. Basically, do you have any thoughts on this? I feel very guilty for being so hesitant to have sex after her candor, and I don't want to make her feel bad about her STD. Okay, here's an example of the damage that the stigma and fear can do. His potential new partner, this lovely woman he's been dating for two months who seems really emotionally intelligent... On the yeah. antiretrovirals, they're going to use condoms and he's going to run off and sleep with someone else who didn't disclose that they have herpes or were exposed to herpes or doesn't know potentially that they have herpes or were exposed to herpes and dump this woman when the risk that she presents to him of contracting herpes is vanishingly small. Right. And you can hear, I mean, you can hear the angst in his voice, um, this particular caller and you know, the thing is, is that we don't necessarily calculate risk um, in an accurate way, because the truth is, is that he is more likely to get HSV from someone who doesn't know their status. So they're not taking medication and they're not using, you know, um, barriers than he is from this woman who actually knows their status, taking medication and using barriers. And so I understand I completely understand why he's feeling the way that he's feeling. And I have to say that I encourage people when somebody is brave enough to disclose, you know, to really think and, you know, do an accurate risk calculation and say, hey, you're less likely to get herpes from this person than you are to get it from some random person whose status is completely unknown. This is a difficult thing, Dan, because it's, you know, the, the devil that you know and the devil that you don't know. Right. And so some people are saying, well, I'd rather just take my chances, you know what I mean, rather than knowingly put myself at some small risk. 
but you're already doing that by being out there and being a sexually active person. The, the parallel to HIV is spooky because now mm-hmm. if somebody tells you that they're HIV positive and they're on meds and they have right. an undetectable viral load, you are at less risk of contracting HIV from that person, even if you're having unprotected sex then you are having protected sex with someone who thinks they're HIV negative because their last HIV test three years ago was negative. Right. Because if that person contracted HIV in the last three years and you're having sex with them at some point in that three years, that's when they're shedding the most virus. That's when they're the most infectious and they'll, they're telling you they're HIV negative. It may be, you know, an informed opinion. It may not be actively intentionally maliciously misleading you. It's because what they think at their last test. But that person who thinks they are HIV negative and might not be is a greater risk than the person who is HIV positive and on meds. Absolutely. And I, you know, tell people, hey, people who don't know their HIV status or their last test was that long ago, their HIV status is unknown. It's not negative. They'll tell you, oh, I'm negative. You know, I say, hey, your HIV status is unknown until you have your next test. The people that are positive and are taking meds, you know, actually can't transmit it sexually. It's that whole concept of undetectable equals untransmittable, right? Dan, or you equals Mm -hmm. you. And we don't have that for herpes. And I really wish that we did. What we can say is that that woman who's taking meds and using barriers is reducing her risk by at least 50%, you know, just with the medication alone, her risk of transmission. And then when you add a barrier on top of it, that's reducing the risk another 65% to her male partners. And then again, she's not able to transmit the virus. Let's say she's not having active outbreaks anymore. She's not able to transmit the virus 90% of the days, you know, of the year anyway. And so again, you know, he is thinking this is a much bigger risk than it actually is because he knows what he's dealing with and he knows what he's facing. So I think hopefully he can reframe this because it sounds like this person is really wonderful and that's who you want to be having sex with and connecting with. Exactly. But let's, let's worst case scenario this. Sure. Let's game it out. He has sex with her. The barriers don't protect him squeaks through the barriers right. squeaks through the mats <laughs> squeaks through the the like she's only shedding yes. 10 days a year and he gets yes. herpes how awful a fate is that really well i mean the thing is is that absolutely some people go through you know real anxiety and depression or even an identity crisis about the whole thing but the truth is is that dan it's more of a nuisance than it is you know an actual kind of life ending event. I mean, people are concerned about the rejection and the disclosure piece of it, but I'm saying from a pure medical standpoint, it has no effects on, you know, sexual performance. It doesn't have, you know, effects on ability to orgasm or have an erection or, you know, fertility, if that's your thing. I mean, from a health standpoint, there are not a ton of negative effects other than the fact that you may get, you know, these recurrent sort of you know, irritations or blisters on your genitals, which arguably is not fun. It's not pleasant, but really it's the social effects and the, and the stigma and the psychological effects that are much, much greater than the, you know, actual sort of physical effects that it has on one's body. Hi, Dan. I am a 30-year-old non-monogamous cis woman living in your hometown of Seattle, and I am calling with a question regarding HPV. My partner and I are non-monogamous and they have been casually seeing someone um, who has had precancerous nodes removed due to HPV. 
About six months ago in February, I asked my partner to get the HPV vaccine before having penetrative sex with that person. They agreed and said they would look into it, but they were worried that they wouldn't be covered by insurance because they were assigned male at birth. Fast forward to now, they're at a festival with the this person that they've been casually dating, but they've still not been vaccinated with the HPV vaccine. At least I don't think so. I forgot to ask before they left to make sure, but I'm pretty sure they would have brought it up. I know that condoms often do not protect against HPV and I'm kind of freaking out. Uh, so two questions. One, if they had sex with condoms, what is a reasonable boundary for me to put up? Is it safe for me to have sex when they get back? I really would like to continue having sex when they get back. And then two, what are the guidelines for the HPV vaccine? I was vaccinated as a teen before the new Gardasil 9 vaccine was released. Is it possible for me to get vaccinated again with the new and improved vaccine? Also, what are the guidelines for penis havers? Can they get vaccinated now and does insurance cover it? All right. So if her partner comes home from this music festival where they're definitely fucking these two are definitely fucking they're at a music festival that's what people do definitely fucking um and if their partner has sex with condoms with the person that they're with Mm -hmm. now who had precancerous hpv cells detected uh and they use condoms what's a reasonable boundary for the caller to establish with their partner when they return Well, I mean, I think, you know, they could also use condoms with their partner as well. You know, as for HPV, unfortunately, condoms, you know, don't work especially well if the HPV is actually located sort of on the vulva, for example. Um, On the cervix, you know, a, a condom will protect you know, the person with the penis, because, you know, the the surface that's actually coming into contact with the HPV will be covered. But if it's on the vulva or if it's around the penis where the condom can't cover, then, you know, condoms, you know, don't do a great job, unfortunately, with that particular virus. However, you know, it certainly couldn't hurt. So, you know, a condom would be a great way to sort of reduce the risk that, you know, they're going to get exposed to a pre, you know, precancerous type of causing HPV to their own cervix. But but let's be real. Like the caller is in an open relationship, has multiple yeah. partners. Their partner has multiple partners. Their partner's yeah. partners probably have multiple partners. Everyone's mm-hmm. already exposed to HPV. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how many types they've been exposed to, but I can pretty much guarantee they've been exposed to at least one type. So that's why if everybody there involved is, you know, under the age of 45, which it sounds like they might be, then I actually would encourage everybody to get vaccinated. And the thing is, Dan, is that we used to have these gendered recommendations around HPV vaccine that has all gone away. And so there is a gender gender neutral uh, recommendation for HPV vaccine for everybody, all the preteens, 11 to 12 year olds, regardless of what their gender identity is or what sex they were assigned at birth. And in fact, now the, um, you know, the vaccine is licensed all the way up to age 45. We know for sure that insurance companies will cover it up to the age of 26 and then after that, it'd be a good idea to explore. But because it is FDA approved up to the age of 45, I've got plenty of patients who've had it even, you know, after the age of 30. And it would protect you against the HPV types that you have not yet been exposed to. We're hearing a lot right now uh, in regards to COVID about booster shots. The mm-hmm. caller raises mm-hmm. uh, what sounds like a question about whether, you know, if you mm-hmm. had an older version of the HPV vaccine, you should get out there and get a booster of the more current versions. Is that the advice the CDC is giving now to people about HPV? 
No, it's not currently recommended. The old shot, which had four types, had two of the types that actually are most likely to cause cervical cancer. And this sounds, this sounds like a um, someone who identifies as female or a cis woman. And so the recommendation, you, you know, you would get sort of 15% um, you know, additional benefit in terms of um, reducing the risk of cancer um, by other HPV types that are in the new vaccine. But right now, the recommendation is not to vaccinate everybody with a booster if they were already fully vaccinated with the original vaccine that had four types. And the reason they encourage the vaccine for everybody of all genders is Mm -hmm. it protects against cervical cancer, anal cancer, penile cancer. It protects and and throat throat cancer and throat cancer. And you don't want your son, uh, you know, coming down with throat cancer or penile cancer or rectal cancer or your son's partner contracting HPV from your son and your son's partner coming down with cervical cancer. If your son has a female partner Uh, and you certainly don't want your daughters coming down with any of these cancers. So everybody should get their kids vaccinated. And if you're a young adult and you can hear Dr. Park and I talking right now and you haven't been vaccinated, if your parents didn't do that or didn't know to do that, go get vaccinated now. Absolutely. We don't, you don't want any of these cancers. Trust me, Dan. Um, And you absolutely, if you have sex, are going to get exposed to HPV. So go out and do it. Dr. Ina Park, Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, STI Prevention Consultant for the Centers for Disease Control, and the author of the really hilarious and interesting and smart. I learned, I've been like reading and talking with people about STDs for 30 years. I learned so much that I didn't know (laughs) reading Strange Bedfellows, her new memoir, Adventures in the Science, History and Surprising Secrets of STDs. Dr. Park, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today and taking some of my listeners' questions. I really appreciate it. Dan, it was my pleasure. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. So I have ADHD, and I love the term neurodivergent because it lets me communicate that my brain is wired differently from most people without having to call myself mentally ill. I don't identify as someone with a mental illness, and I really like that there's a term that says, hey, my thoughts travel down a slightly different path. And even though I need medication to stay happy and productive, What I've had to overcome is a tiny hill compared to what some other people with atypical brains have had to deal with. And I bring this up because I'm also a spanko. And I don't really identify as part of the LGBTQ community because for all that I'm a pervy top, I'm also a heteroflexible cis man. And for me to wear that label and adopt that struggle seems false. And yet... My most satisfying sex act is one in which I stay fully clothed the entire time. So I'd love it if there was a word besides alter sexual, which is both vague and obscure. And not just for me, but for everybody out there with a paraphilia, for all the lures and lees and rope bunnies and foot worshippers whose main sexual interest has nothing to do with traditional penetrative sex. So can you or your listeners think of a good word that means neurodivergent, but for fucking? Doesn't anyone want to be straight anymore? Straight is a a fine thing to be. I, I don't want to erase your sexuality or your sexual orientation. You describe yourself as heteroflexible, which is straight with rainbow sprinkles maybe on top. You're a spanko. And if you're a heteroflexible spanko, maybe you've spanked the occasional dude and really enjoyed it. But if you're primarily heterosexual, that's your orientation. And the sex act that you enjoy most is spanking. And you don't have to 
disrobe for that. I still think that that's a kind of heterosexual activity that you are a heterosexual man with a very specific sexual interest. And like a lot of people with paraphilias, uh, not all people with paraphilias or kinks, the kink or the paraphilia is the most important thing. Indeed, you know, if there is spanking in a sex session, that may be all that you need. You know, I was talking once with a friend who was into bondage and he was playing with a guy who tied him up and he said to the guy, well, I don't want to have sex because I don't want to cheat on my boyfriend. And the guy who tied him up looked at him and said, this for me is sex. We are having sex. I think that's true for you. And you know, and that guy and the guy I was with were gay guy, gay friends of mine. I wound up meeting and knowing both of them. That I think is true for you, but straight spanking for you is sex. It's women you like to spank. You're a cisgendered male. It's women primarily you like to spank. You say you're a little bit heteroflexible. There are some kinky people who are uh, homoflexible, heteroflexible, that the kink is the thing and they can enjoy it at times with uh, people of any gender. But if primarily it's women that you want to spank or be spanked by and you're a man and a cis man, I don't think we need to invent a whole new category for you. I think it's better to stick around in heterosexuality and complicate it because heterosexuality isn't and shouldn't be just PIV, just like homosexuality isn't and shouldn't be just PIB. And a gay guy who's really into bondage can have great sex without ever taking his clothes off just by tying somebody up who enjoys being tied up, tying up some guy who enjoys being tied up by him. And you, a straight guy, heteroflexible straight guy, can have great straight sex and do nothing during that sexual encounter but spank your consenting woman partner who wanted that from you and enjoyed that as much as you did. And I think that can be straight sex too. And that can be great sex too. And I would like to live in a world where when someone says that they're gay or straight, you have to keep asking questions. You can't make assumptions about everything or anything that they like to do with the partners that they are attracted to. I like sexuality to be expansive and complicated and messy. And I think this ever more thinly sliced taxonomy of sexual orientations is draining something away is, you know, giving people words and terms that help them to communicate and understand themselves. And that is great. But in a way it's making gayness or straightness or bi-ness a little flat, a little less interesting, I think, than those sexual orientations as we live them actually are. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some listener tweets. MW Concert Video tweets, Hi, at Fake Dan Savage. This is for the long-haired lesbian on Savage Lovecast, episode 783. Get a close-cropped haircut and donate your hair to at Locks of Love, a charity collecting hair for children who've lost theirs for medical reasons like cancer treatment. Pretty Feet F63662960 tweets, Findom is when someone gets off on sending hot strangers money with or without accompanying degradation. What do you call it when someone gets off on strangers sending the money for being hot? I know I am not the only one. Well, we could call that nice work if you can get it. But what you're doing already has a name, Pretty Feet. 
Findom. The kink Findom involves thin subs sending money to doms they find hot with or without being degraded. There's no fin subbing without someone out there fin doming pretty feet, and that's what you're doing, Findom. And finally, his dudeness tweets regarding the question about staying relatively dry during water sports and keeping your mattress dry. There is a fabulous woman-owned Rhode Island company called Fux Pads. You and your listeners should know about Dan. They're at fuxpads.com. Thanks for the recommendation. Your dudeness, I took a look, and the line of play pads made by Fux Pads, that's F-U-X Pads, look beautiful and sexy. Listeners who want to check them out, you go to F-U-X-P-A-D-S.com. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And as always, thank you to everyone who posted about the show to social media this week. We really appreciate it. And now, listener response calls. To the caller in episode 783 who is contemplating revenge against her husband for his bachelor weekend. It's not clear from the call whether you actually know what happened on that weekend or not. I know you said it was a don't ask, don't tell kind of situation, but at this point it might be prudent to ask just because whatever you're imagining happened down there might not have happened at all. That said, I do think you should still get the same pass that you were willing to give him. I don't know that that changes that situation, but maybe just make sure you know what you're getting revenge for before you start seeking it. Hi, Dan. This is a response to the caller in episode 783 who wanted to play with piss without actually getting wet. They make large, disposable, waterproof absorbent pads for people with urinary incontinence to protect beds and furniture. You see them a lot in hospitals and nursing homes, and you can buy them at the drugstore or online. I'm thinking the caller could prepare the area with a pad on the bed, some baby wipes for a quick wipe down afterward, and a trash can nearby. That way he can have his fun, gather it all up, and throw it away, and cuddle in a nice, dry bed. Maybe not great for the planet, but it seems to meet the caller's needs. So this is for the woman who just came out and she's looking to cut her hair. I am a straight woman, but I am a gay woman magnet because I have short hair. And let me just tell you how glorious it is to be able to quickly style it. And it looks cute and it's fun. And you know what? I guess I'm, I'm in my mid-40s and I'm at that like who cares what everybody else thinks. And I promise you it is true. And, and I promise you that you will get there. If you love you and you love the way your hair looks, who gives a shit if you look like who you are? And that's the other thing, too. Love yourself. You are amazing. With long hair or short hair, I say hit the book button and go have a good time and, and really have, have fun with it. Because here's the other thing to remember. It'll grow back. I promise. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about something I said on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We prefer those voice memos. The sound quality is better, but we swing both ways. Hump 2021 is on its way to Albuquerque, Washington, D.C., and Tucson this week. You can catch a screening at Guild Cinema in Albuquerque, Black Cat in Washington, D.C., and the screening room in Tucson. Or if you'd rather watch porn at home alone, which is weird, but I'm not judging, then you can sign up for one of our live streams. Also, the deadline to submit for Hump 2022 is coming right up December 8th. 
So go to humpfilmfest.com right now for info on submitting your film for Hump or attending a screening of Hump. And a reminder that my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, is out now. Grab a copy anywhere books are sold. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Ina Park on Twitter at Ina Park MD. That's I-N-A-P-A-R-K-M-D. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hertunian. And me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.